Greetings and welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church whose mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Today's podcast is sponsored by TJB Web Media, a New Jersey SEO marketing and WordPress web design company for businesses, churches, and nonprofits. It's number it's ranked number one in Google for New Jersey SEO companies and New Jersey internet marketing companies. If you already have a website and you would like some consulting on how to make it more effective and to get more traffic to it, um, TJB Web Media would be a good place to start. Um, Dave Butler is very well versed and capable and approaches each task with alacrity and integrity. So today's podcast, John actually transitions from the life and biography of Peter into the epistle of First Peter. But before he does, before the sermon, he does mention um, the situation in Israel going on right now. For me, I, you know, um, I don't want some kind of half-baked apocalypse. If we're going to get on with the apocalypse, let's get on with it. Anyway, without further delay, here's John. Let's get down to our study. But before we do, I've got an important prayer request for you. Sal has brought it to my mind here a moment ago. Bill Lloyd told me about it last, uh, the last day or so. He gave me a text. It was a real simple text. It said, Israel is at war. Now, do you know what that means to you? I'm convinced that 99.9% of Americans say nothing. Doesn't matter to me. I'm still going to go for lunch. I still got to get up in the morning and go to work. Doesn't really matter to me. But it does. There's a spiritual problem here. A spiritual problem that affects the end times in all of our lives. And that's a spiritual problem reflected in God's dealing with Israel. Now you all know what a miraculous thing God did in bringing together those who were scattered all over the world and forming that nation again in 1948. The nation Israel. Most historians and politicians, all the people that are supposed to know such, they didn't predict it. They didn't know it was going to happen. But God did. Because He promised it. He knew exactly when He was going to fulfill His promise to the nation Israel. Now, 
us old Gentiles, you know, we we have a way of kind of blowing off Israel altogether. You know, well, it's okay, you know, because Gentiles don't necessarily have the same promises that God gave Israel. And you Gentiles who have a tendency to blow off Israel will only do so as long as it doesn't affect your life. But there's a subtle thing I want you all to see here that's happening right now, even though it's invisible to most people's eyes. And that subtle thing is the working of God to fulfill His promises to Israel. Now, why is that so important to us? We're Gentiles. Yeah, you may have been born a Gentile, a non-Jew. In their language, you may be an outsider. But because of the work and ministry of Jesus, what He's done for you, he has made you the children of Abraham. You know what that means? You're a Jew. Now, you may not have thought of yourself as being a Jew. And physically, according to the flesh, you may not be a Jew. But spiritually, according to the promise of God, you're a Jew. And whatever goes on in Israel affects you personally and directly as a Jew. Now again, you may not see all of the connections. You may not understand what's going on here. And I don't profess, believe me, I don't profess to know it all either. But what I do know is that God's not done with Israel. As bad as their enemies want to wipe them off the face of the earth, Iran having vowed to do so, God said no. He said no, that's not going to happen. These are my people. And there's a time coming, and I think it's close, when as Paul warned the Gentile readers in the book of Romans, he said, now don't get all high-minded because the Jews as a nation rejected their Messiah and therefore were cut off. And you Gentiles were grafted in to God's people. Don't get all high-minded about that because the day is coming when he's going to break off that grafted in branch and reestablish the original branch. See, God's not done with Israel. And whether you recognize it or not, what goes on in Israel has a direct impact on you in many, many more ways than you can even imagine. So all that being said, we're going to do what... Sal requested here this morning. We're going to pray for Israel. We're going to lift them up before the Lord, the King of the universe.
who has a plan not only for them as a nation, but for us as well. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come into your presence right now, with one accord, we lift our voice to you on behalf of our nation Israel. Father, I know the cost and the horrors of the war they're in. And I understand, Father, that the conflict that they're fighting is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, with spiritual wickedness in high places. And we understand, Father, that you and you alone can defeat that enemy. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you as head over all, all principality and power. And we ask you, according to your divine power, according to your plan, according to your will, that you would deliver Israel out of the hands of their enemies. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Kind of reminds me of what Peter had to face. Remember, we've been studying Peter for the last couple of well, last month or so, I was giving you kind of a biography of the Apostle Peter. And I want to continue that study with you here this morning. We're going to get a little more in depth in that study because all of that, that biographical study of Peter is preparation for our study of the two letters that are named after him in the New Testament, First and Second Peter. And we're going to be looking at those in some detail over the next several weeks, beginning today, about this guy whose real name, or his birth name was Simon. But you remember Jesus changed his name. He said, no, you're not Simon anymore. That's your fleshly identity. I'm going to make you Petros, a rock. That's your spiritual identity. And it was interesting to me in looking at the, the record, the biblical record, how that Peter, all throughout the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is mentioned over and over again. In any list of the apostles, Peter is always mentioned first. Because it seems to me, in looking at his life, he was a natural-born leader. He had the ability to earn the respect of those who hung out with him. And he was willing to run the risk when nobody else would. Remember when he stepped out of the boat in the middle of a storm? That was pretty risky. Nobody else got out of that boat, but Peter did. And throughout our study, and it's been brief, I know, but a brief study of the life of Peter, we've touched on several such events. So when we get to the letters that he wrote, First and Second Peter, we have an idea already of the character of the one that's writing the letter, of what he wants us to know. And I find it interesting that if anyone was ever set up to seek their own glory 
toot their own horn and make themselves look great. It was Peter. He actually fulfilled and answered that question that all the disciples had the night before Jesus was crucified. Remember what they were arguing about? Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? And Peter fulfilled that role, according to the record. He's the greatest in this sense, even though he could have and had the characteristics of a bully who would think only of himself and exalt himself at the expense of others. That wasn't, wasn't what Peter turned out to be. He was the greatest in the sense that Jesus described the greatest. He said, the greatest among you will be the one who serves everyone. He was a servant leader, if you will, and a tremendous example of what a servant leader truly is. And so when it comes to reading what he has to say here, I think it's really important that we pay attention. Because you see, Peter wasn't just preaching and teaching healing and all of that apostolic work among the people that he lived with, but he had a far-reaching ministry that includes even us today, down through the centuries. So as we begin our study in First Peter here, I want us to kind of understand the overview of what we're going to be looking at in this one general letter. And to put it in a nutshell, put it real simply, Peter is about to tell us the secret to dealing with all the suffering in this world. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He's about to unveil for you a secret that is hidden for most people on how you can not only endure, but you can actually endure with joy when bad things happen. I suspect Peter had a lot of history in that because he followed Jesus. See, when they were in the upper room after Jesus was crucified and raised up again and he commissioned them, told them, I want you to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, etc. When they were in that upper room, Peter as well as the other disciples, were there not because it was a comfortable, pretty place, a retreat area. No. They were there hiding from the same people that cried, crucify him. They were scared. They were hurting. They were suffering. Had no idea what their future held. Peter 
is well aware of what suffering in this world really looks like. But more than that, he found a secret, a key that he wants to share with all of us. And so let me just read these verses to you. We're, gonna, we're not going to focus on the entire letter, obviously, in one shot. But at the beginning of this letter, I, I want to point it out to you. In verse 1, First Peter, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers. Another translation for that is the exiles. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You know, where is those places? Most of them are in modern-day Turkey today. But how did those people get there? They were scattered in what historic historians refer to as the Great Diaspora because of persecution in Jerusalem. See, all people's all Peter's cronies and people were hanging out in Jerusalem. That's when the church began to develop that Jesus had promised to build. In fact, on the very first day of Pentecost, after Peter preached that sermon, there were 3,000 people added to the church. On another occasion, there were 5,000 men, not counting their wives and kids, added to the church. I mean, the church of Jerusalem, the people who identify themselves as followers of Jesus, who believed that he had risen from the dead <coughs> was estimated to be closer to ten or 15,000 people. And guess who's leading them? Peter. Now you talk about a setup to be the greatest in the kingdom. Other people that have such a following and are charged with the responsibility of leading people use that as an occasion to make themselves shine, make themselves look good, make themselves rich and famous. Not with Peter. And that's probably the most astounding thing to me about his character. Is that even though he was set in that position to take full advantage for his own sake, he continued to be a humble servant leader. But the persecution became so bad, particularly under Saul of Tarsus, remember him? Persecution became so bad, people were being arrested, thrown into jail, people were being killed. It became so bad. I don't think that's an air raid, and I think that's my neighbor taking off. Anyhow, things were so bad. By the way, he waits till we start to have church before he flies. Okay. Now, don't be praying that he crashes. Okay, come on. The sons of thunder would do that, you know. Things were so hot in Jerusalem that those followers of Jesus took their families and their belongings and they left. Get out. 
of Jerusalem, and they scattered throughout the empire. These are the people that Peter are, is still concerned with. You know, some of those people he healed personally, like the man on the temple steps. Others he healed indirectly. You know, there was a time when people from all the villages around Jerusalem would bring all their sick folk and, and their people who were struggling and suffering together and lay them down in the streets. Why? Waiting for Peter just to pass by. Because when his shadow of his passing touched them, they were healed. Now, you think that might give you a big head? But right from the start, Peter maintained his stance as a servant leader. In fact, the very first miracle recorded for us in Acts chapter 3, he and John were going about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They were going up to the temple to pray and following the leadership of the Spirit to see what was up. And they noticed this guy being carried up to the steps, which was the usual custom, because this man was born crippled, unable to walk. And so what he did is he had people carry him over to the temple steps, and there he begged for alms, for charitable gifts from the people who were entering into the temple. Nice positioning there, right on the steps of the temple. But Peter looked at him intensely, fastened his eyes on him, called him out and said, look at us. He said, silver and gold have I none. But what I do have, I'm going to give you. He reached out his hand, took him by the hand, and said, rise up and walk. And immediately the man was strengthened. Now, when all the people in the temple... They all knew this guy. They'd given him money before. They knew his story. When they saw him walking with Peter and John, and they saw him hugging them and clinging to them, they were amazed. What has happened here? A miracle. The very first thing Peter said out of his mouth, was you men of Israel, why are you looking at us? Why are you looking at us as though by our power we made this man well? You're missing the point if you're looking at us. You see, it's the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth who you crucified. And faith in his name that has caused this man to be strong. So right from the outset, Peter refused to take any of God's glory and yet directed those who would give it to God himself. Now, he followed through with that, by the way, throughout his entire ministry. And so by the time we get this letter that he's written in his closing days, we have a pretty good idea of the character of Peter. 
So when he's writing this letter to those who have been scattered abroad because of the persecution, he's writing it for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to encourage, to comfort, to assure those folks who are suffering. That's the theme of his letter, the entire letter. I want you to know, he said, about suffering and about how you can have the victory in the very middle of it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so listen as we read these verses that follow. He says, Concerning those who are scattered around, first of all, he says, you're elect, you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit set you apart, opened your eyes, spoke to you unto obedience, that is, trusting and obeying the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice. You took his sacrifice as being for you. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Now, what Peter is concerned with here is that these folks can actually experience the grace of God, which he knew a great deal about from personal first-hand experience. And then he launches off into the praise of God himself. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively or living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein we greatly rejoice. And I'm going to stop right there. What he has just described is the basis for our ability to rejoice, to experience joy, what he'll call here in a little while, joy unspeakable and full of glory. The ability to rejoice and speak or experience the unspeakable joy and the reasons for it. He just described it. So let's look at it a little closer in detail. Because God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, had mercy on us. He's begotten us again into a living hope. What does that mean? Begotten us again to a living hope. Here he's talking about what God has done for you. You couldn't do for yourself. It's already done. It's finished. He, through the person and work of his son Jesus on the cross, made you a brand new person who is, as he told Nicodemus, begotten or born of the Spirit. You're no longer the same old person you've always thought you were. You've been begotten again unto a living hope. See, it's real important that we get this foundation down because a lot of us, 
well, all of us, not just a lot of us, all of us all over the world are looking for a way to be more comfortable. We're looking for a way to get out of our problems. We're looking for a way not to suffer. Because nobody likes suffering. So we're all looking for that way to get away from suffering. Peter is revealing to us here the only way possible. He is revealing to us how we deal with suffering in a miraculous way. And the first step in that is to know and be assured of who God has made you to be. See, unless you know that, unless you know for sure who God has made you to be, and you still think of yourself as the same old person you've always thought of yourself, then the only thing you have to trust is in your track record to avoid suffering. How's that work? Hmm? That work real good for you? Of course not. You can't avoid suffering. You're living in a sin-cursed body. It's falling apart. The sin-cursed world is falling apart. You're going to suffer along with everybody else. So your best efforts to avoid suffering have not worked. So Peter points it out to us that we're not that person anymore. Mm-mm. We have been miraculously, by God's mercy, through His grace, begotten again unto a living hope. We've been born into a living hope. So this new person that God has made you to be, I've said repeatedly over and over again, and I'll say it again right now, this new person that you are will never lose. It can't lose, no matter what because of who you are. See, no one was more obedient than the Father than Jesus. And yet no human being has ever suffered as much as Jesus. How he did that by the grace of God for our sake is what gave him the joy to endure the cross. That's the secret Peter learned. He actually saw it firsthand. He saw it at work. And he wants to share that with us now. This is what it's going to take. Number one, knowing who you are. You're a brand new person in Christ Jesus. You have his righteousness. You have his mind. You have his spirit. You have his calling. You are sent into this world like he was by the Father. Jesus sends you. So you're connected here with the one who has supreme victory over all suffering. Jesus, the Messiah. And he wants us to know that in addition to that, not only have you been begotten under this living or lively hope, it says, but also to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Now the living hope we're talking about here 
because you're this brand new person. You're inseparably joined to Christ. What's true of him is true of you. You and Jesus are one. He is in you. You are in him. And both you and him are in the Father because of this mysterious, glorious union with Christ. You can deal with this world and all of its suffering. That's the first thing. But secondly, in addition to that, you've also received an inheritance. Something you're going to get later. Which is reserved for you in heaven. Now it's important to point out here, there's a lot of folks that, you know, when they're born again, they become a follower of Christ, they're a disciple. They get the idea that what they have to do is just kind of tread water here until they get to heaven. And as they're treading water, they're kind of worried because they're not sure they're good enough to get into heaven in the first place. So they get nervous about that. But see, that's as far away from the truth as it can possibly be. The truth is, you have the opportunity right now to experience heaven. You can experience it right now on this earth. There are a lot of ways to phrase that, but probably the easiest to understand is heaven is where Jesus is. Right? That means it's not only seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies, but where Jesus is, is right slap dab in the middle of you right now. You have heaven inside of you. And you have an inheritance waiting on you. The greatest thing about that inheritance, in my mind at least, is the fact that what I have waiting on me right now, in the heavenlies, reserved for me, is a brand new body. A brand new body. Fashioned after the body of our resurrected Lord. That's what's waiting on me. A brand new body. If I get rid of this body, by whatever means, I have a new body waiting for me already. That's my inheritance. See, this business of salvation that God is in, in and He's revealing to us now, yeah, it starts with the forgiveness of your sins and that are past. But it continues and will be ultimately culminated when, you grant, when He grants you that brand new body that separates you entirely from sins. But right now, in between, we still have an important process to look at. And that is what God, living in you, through His Son Jesus, is doing right now in your life. That is the source of your joy. Look at what I'm saying here, and what Peter says in this next verse. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
wherein you greatly rejoice. Now, we've all greatly rejoiced in that to one degree or another as we had that personal encounter with Jesus, as we have the forgiveness of sin, as he eliminates our shame, and he grants to us a brand new identity that is holy and without blame before God. We all can rejoice in that personally right now. We can rejoice that that's the person God has made us to be. But can you imagine what kind of joy you're going to have when you see him face to face? Can you imagine the joy that you're going to experience in the rejoicing that you're going to have when you surround his throne in glorified body? A body just like the body Jesus rose again from the dead with. But until then, we greatly rejoice in not only what he has given us, but what lies ahead. But in the middle of verse 6, he throws a little caveat in there. Okay, and this is this kind of throws people a little bit. He says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, for a little while. If need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. What's he talking about? In military terms, though now you are in the suck. Now you are in pain. Now you're in the middle of all this garbage. What garbage is he talking about? He's talking about the garbage of being persecuted, having to leave Jerusalem, scattered abroad. He says, even in the midst of that, you still have, as he goes on to say, you still have the potential, the secret for joy, hope, rejoicing. Even though you're in the middle of it. Then he describes that in a little different way, the persecution. You know, there's different ways you can describe suffering. It's like there are different sufferings, you know, that we experience. And you all know that suffering is relative, right? Yeah, your suffering is your suffering. Whether anybody else is suffering like that or not, it's still your suffering. It's personal, relative you. What he calls that, and this next verse is something that we all have to come to grips with in our mind. He says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, what's he talking about here? He is referring to your suffering as the trial of your faith. 
You know, I've said it repeatedly that nothing will test your faith in the gospel, in the good news of who God has made you to be. Nothing will test that more than personal suffering. That's why the Apostle Paul, in writing that great treatise on the, on the gospel for believers, in the last half, he devoted one half of Romans 8 to how we face and deal with suffering. That's how important it is. Paul knew that, as well as Peter. He called it the trial of your faith. Now, don't take this religiously. Okay, Don't look at this through religious eyes, because religious eyes will tell you that the trial of your faith is really just to see whether you got any faith or not. If you have faith, you win. If you don't have faith, you lose. So the trial of your faith is whether you got faith or not. No, no, no. That's missing the whole point here. You got faith. God gave it to you. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And your faith originated with His faith. Did you know that? Because God believed the truth about you. How did He believe that? Because He made you to be who you are. And His faith is reflected in your faith. That's what Paul meant in Romans chapter 1, from faith to faith. So the trial of your faith has nothing to do with whether you got it or not. You have it explicitly. It's been given to you. As Paul told the Galatians, he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, that's right now, in the middle of all this suffering, I live by the faith of the Son of God. What does that mean? The faith of Jesus. See, you have right now, inside of you, and that new person God has made you to be, the same exact faith that Jesus had while he walked on this earth. Yeah, it's there. It's already there. Now, I know if you're like most people, you kind of have trouble seeing that. And so Peter's helping us out here. He's saying your suffering is nothing more than the trial or testing of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes. Why? Because that faith that is being tested in you will be manifest and purified not only to others, not only to God, but to you as well. Look at it again. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Now, don't restrict the appearing of the Lord Jesus at the end of the age when he returns. Okay, don't restrict that because the Lord Jesus appeared here this morning. Did you know that? Yeah. 
He, through his spirit, is appearing to each one of you today. That's the appearing of the Lord Jesus. So don't restrict this to some pie in the sky by and by idea. No, it's meant for right now, today. And you know how they purify gold, and especially in the old days, the alchemists would pass it through the furnace, the fire, and it would melt, and all the dross, all the impurities would burn up, and on the other side it would come out more pure. That's what's happening to the faith that God has given you, the faith of the Son of God. Through the trials that you must endure, your faith is being purified so that it can be praised and bring honor to God. Now, verse 8, he says, Whom having not seen, this is referring to Jesus now, whom having not seen, you love. See, none of you, none of us, has ever seen Jesus face to face in flesh in this world. Peter did. The other early apostles and witnesses did. But we haven't. We haven't seen Jesus face to face. And yet, we love him. See what Peter's looking at here? The result of your faith is that you have this love for Jesus. And even though you don't see him now at all, he goes on to say, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. This is what he wanted for everyone who was scattered out through the empire because of the persecution they suffered and were still going through persecution. This is what he wanted for them. He wanted them to experience the joy unspeakable and full of glory. What does it mean by joy unspeakable? That means the joy and the rejoicing that you can't describe, that you can't explain. That, yeah, you're in the middle of all this crap going on, and yet you have this joy and this peace. And it's not explainable. He wants you to have it in your trials. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day, I forget who it was now, but... I was talking about the shape that America is in right now and the problems we're having and how that the gospel, the good news, just just didn't seem to be relevant or apply to people. That's because we've got all of our needs met already. We don't feel like we have a need Got plenty of money in the bank, got a house, got a nice car, go on vacation every now and then. Oh, we're cool. We're good. We don't need God. We become God. We don't need Him. 
Be why? Because we are our own God. We have defined ourselves. We have, I like those people who define themselves as a dog or a cat or whatever. I identify as a wart or a frog. I don't care what it is, but I get tickled about that because what they're really struggling with is identity and what they really need to identify themselves out as is Christ. That's what God wants. He wants you to identify yourself as Christ. And I was talking to this person the other day and I said, but, but you know, it's not relative to the people, immediately relative to the people who think they have everything already. That's the biggest problem we've got in America. That's why, by the way, for the last 30 years, I know this from a missionary to Russia, that the churches behind the then Iron Curtain were praying for Americans because they know what we're facing. Self-reliance rather than God-reliance. Now, I don't want to get off on a tangent there, but what I was, my point was that when you have the need and God sets you up for that through the trying or testing of your faith, through the trials, through the problems you have to experience like everybody else, not just you. When God sets you up for that, it's for a good reason. It's so that you might experience this joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I'm going to give you one example of it, and we're going to quit for today. When declaring the gospel, Paul's approach was to go into the synagogue of whatever town or village it was in, where the Jews met together on the Sabbath, and there he would declare the gospels to the Jew first. Now, invariably, what happened when he went and did that was half the people in the synagogue rejoiced. They loved it. They wanted to hear more. But the other half, the religious group, began looking for stones that they may kill him for blasphemy. So there was a division there. On one such occasion, he not only irritated the Jews, but he also irritated the commerce of the city and they wanted to stone him. At Philippi, instead of stoning him immediately, they locked him in prison where after they beat him, almost to a bloody pulp, they threw him in this old cell. They were just going to let him die naturally. And yet, while they're in that cell, and it's recorded for us in Acts 16, while they were in that cell, a, mir a miracle happened. They began to sing praises to God at midnight, praising Him, thanking Him, rejoicing. How in the world can that happen? How can, how can you do that after experiencing such trauma? How can you Thank God and praise Him in the middle of it. That's that joy unspeakable and full of glory that Peter's talking about. And he was an expert at it. 
Wasn't just Paul thrown in jail all the time. Peter also was thrown in jail. So he was an expert at this joy unspeakable, full of glory. He was an eyewitness of it. He experienced it. He knew it could be true. And therefore, it's true for you. And that's why he's writing the letter. He's trying to tell you something that goes beyond all of our natural understanding. And that is, in the middle of your suffering, the Comforter, the Spirit of God, can work in you to create a sense of joy and rejoicing that is miraculous, even in the middle of your suffering. So that's the point he's trying to get across. And he'll be developing that point all through this letter. So what, he's, what he has to offer to us is probably one of the greatest gifts any writer of the New Testament give, could give us, and that's how to face suffering in a healthy way. How to face it in the power of the Spirit, rejoicing in truth and in spirit. Let's pray. Father God, as we come into your presence, I thank you for this joy that we're talking about. I thank you for your ability to cut right down through all the issues, all the emotions, all the problems, all the craziness of our suffering and to give us that joy, that inward contentment that we're okay because of who we are and who you made us to be. I thank you for that source of comfort, for that source of joy that not just comforts us, makes us feel better, but it releases us from our self-centeredness to actually care about and love others. I thank you for this, Father, and I ask you to continue to teach us now as we go our separate ways. You continue to bring the point home you want brought home. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 